Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner at the concentration camps at Auschwitz and Dachau during World War II. As a result of his time, he wrote the best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning. His central argument in the book, having observed the people in concentration camps, is that people can endure any what in life if they have a why in life. But part of his book also, he talks about where the concentration camps came from. He says that the, con the consequence of concentration camps stem not to some ministry office in Berlin. They actually stem to the ideas from the professor's office on university campuses throughout Germany. You see, our behavior, good or bad, comes from the ideas we have about reality. Ideas have consequences. So here we are in the book of Titus, and there are these false teachers on the island of Crete. They teach the idea that you can purify yourself and really belong to God by doing outward actions, things you do and things you don't do. This idea has consequences. One of those, in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says it has the consequence of making them unfit for any good work. That's because this idea makes godliness just a matter of performance and not a matter of the heart. This idea has the consequence of making your walk with God shallow. It has the consequence of making you overconfident that you are godly when your heart is actually far from the Lord. Paul continues his theme as, he, as we go into chapter 2, that ideas have consequences. On the flip side, the good ideas or the good doctrine that we believe should have good consequences for how we live. It's like this. Paul tells Titus, you have superior ingredients, and therefore you should be able to make superior meals. There's a reason why food from Morton's Steakhouse tastes better than food from McDonald's. There are lots of reasons why, but maybe the first reason is because Morton's uses superior ingredients. So if you're not with me there, turn with me to Titus 2, verses 1 to 10. You'll find it on page, 100, page 998, the Bible's provided. Please listen as I read, and after we're done reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree, would you say thanks be to God? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, in all respects, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, 
so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not proffering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adore the doctrine of God our Savior. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. The main point of this passage, and we pray the main point of this sermon, is this. Sound doctrine produces sound lives so that together we shine the light of the gospel in a dark world. That word sound, you might notice a footnote if you're using an ESV, that word sound can also be translated as healthy, which might be a good way to think about it. Healthy doctrine produces healthy lives. Healthy not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, behaviorally. So we have three points unpacking this main point. We want to display the doctrine, disciple the doctrine, and adorn the doctrine. I tried really hard to finish the alliteration, but didn't quite make it. So you can give me a 2.5 out of 3 for that. First up, display the doctrine. I want you to go back to verse 1. I, Paul writes, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Just those first four words, but as for you. We just spent a long time talking about false teachers, who they are and where they're coming from and what they're teaching. Paul pulls no punches. But it's easy to keep on talking about false teachers and just focus on them so much that you forget about yourself. I think Titus can face the temptation that many of us face in a very polarized age. A lot of people call it whataboutism. That anytime there is a critique of yourself or your group, the first response isn't self-examination. It's, well, what about them? about what they're doing. Titus should not fall for the temptation. What about ism? Neither should we. We should remember just these four little words. But as for you, I'm reminded of what Jesus says to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? We have to remember, as Peter says, that judgment begins in the household of God. Not be so caught up with the world that we forget to look at our own affairs. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. This word for teach isn't the typical word for teach used in the New Testament. It, it actually has a, a wider sense. It would include all of Titus's speech. So it's not just the times when he's preaching a sermon, not just the times when he's leading a Bible study, but the times when he prays, the times when he interacts with people. All of his speech, he should lead people to live in accordance with sound doctrine. And it is Interesting, isn't it? Of course, Titus will teach sound doctrine, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the type of life that is consistent with the doctrine that you believe. Paul does this in pretty much all of his letters. First half of his letters normally are the doctrine, and the second half of his letters are normally, what do you do with the doctrine? How do you now live in light of the doctrine? Teach what accords with it, what's consistent with it. In fact, in looking at Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 1, Paul pretty much works backwards. 
verses 1 to 10. It's kind of like the final product or the meal. And then verses 11 to 15 are sort of the ingredients that make up the meal. Another way to put it is verses 1 to 10 are like the fruit, and verses 11 to 15 are like the root. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Even just on this point, a quick application. I don't know if anybody here, maybe in the future or currently, is looking for a church home. I've only had a few occasions in my life when I had opportunity to do that. But if you ever do, the first thing you normally do, like if you're like me, is you go on a church's website and then you find the church's statement of faith. This is a good place to start. You want to make sure the church believes and teaches the Bible. This verse, I want to maybe give you a new category of not settling for just a good statement of faith. We need to live in accordance with the doctrine we believe. The doctrine we believe should not just show up with, on words of, on a page, it should show up in our lives. So it's just the simple dynamic is so easy to see. You can have a flawless statement of faith and still have a church that is filled with jerks. Even in participating in church life, I think about how you approach Sunday mornings. You want to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We're not just looking for technical sermons that are you know, specifically biblical and, and sound, although that's a good start. What we're looking here is not for the word to end, at this time, we want the sound doctrine that goes forth from this pulpit to echo in this people, to echo in the psalms we sing, in the prayers we pray, in the conversations we have when we leave this place and interact with our friends and neighbors and co-workers. Don't just treat this time as a lecture hall to sit and receive and then empty out. Healthy lives display our healthy doctrine. And Paul continues, he says, this happens across the church. Everybody's included. He's going to talk about six different groups and their healthy lives displaying their healthy doctrine. So we're going to go through those one by one, kind of quickly, but this will be the majority of our time. So group number one, older men, their healthy lives display their healthy doctrine. Paul talks about that in verse 2. And just as a leading up to all these groups, for all of the qualities Paul calls each group to have, he likely focuses on those because of the specific tendencies and temptations of that particular group. So for older men, for example, there's a reason why so many people love the movie Grumpy Old Men. <laughs> because we can resonate with it. Older men are tempted to complain and grumble, especially do so from the sidelines, as what people call an armchair quarterback, right? They're not actually in the game, they're just on the sideline kind of criticizing the game. That's a temptation. But if we're talking about a church's health, a church is healthier when its older men are theologically, spiritually, and behaviorally healthy. A church is healthier when its older men have left behind the excessive lifestyle of their youth. 
left behind the impulsive decision-making of their youth. A church is healthier when its older men are sober-minded and self-controlled. A church is healthier when its wisest and most experienced men don't let themselves go spiritually. We talk a lot about letting yourself go physically, but don't let yourself go spiritually. It's good for the church's health when the older men maintain a desire to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. When a church is healthier, when it's older men, don't just demand the respect of others. They win the respect of others. That's what that word dignified means in verse 2. It means worthy of respect. Older brothers, I want to invite you. Don't just criticize us, the younger generation. Invest in us, the younger generation. Aspire to be the kind of man that you want us to be when we grow up. Older men, this group has the potential to be the most influential in the church. But if they are lax in their Bibles, if they are loose with their lips, if they are lousy in their example, then older men will make the church susceptible to the sickness of false doctrine. So older men, if, if this describes you, it, it would likely describe those 50 and above uh, in, in Titus's context. I invite you this afternoon to read the example of Caleb from Joshua 14, 6 to 15, and see how he spent his older age, his best years in front of him. Group number two, who display their healthy doctrine through their healthy lives, are older women. Paul talks about them in verses 3 and into verse 4. He starts off, he says, likewise, they should be reverent in behavior. He's like, he's saying, ditto for the older women. They're to do the same things as the older men. But then Paul addresses their speech. They're not to be slanderers. This word means leveling accusations or malicious talk. It actually has this, it's the same root word that's used for Satan in that name, who is the principal accuser. But I think whether women or men, with each year, the older you get, it just becomes easier to look down on people younger than you. You say things like, you know, parents these days don't know what they're doing. You observe kids maybe acting up a little bit, and you say, bet me if I ever acted like that around my mom when I was a kid, what they would have done. It's a good reminder from Ephesians chapter 4 that all of our speech should be done for building up, not for tearing down. Even our well-thought-out and careful critiques should be done for building up. I've heard a good practice, maybe you could consider adopting it, that's before you ever offer one thoughtful critique, you should before that offer 10 encouragements that are sincere. Paul addresses their speech and, and he talks to these older women and how they display their doctrine. He addresses their appetites. He says, not slaves to much wine. Again, this is probably something particular to their context in Crete, probably prevalent among older women in but we remember again from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, that all Christians are not to get drunk with wine, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the, the stereotype picture we might have from, from these instructions is Paul doesn't want women to go to too many brunches where they gossip too much 
and they drink out too many mimosas. <laughs> Paul addresses their teaching of them. He says they are to teach what is good. So it is healthy for a church when its older women have a heart to build up others, not to tear them down. When its older women spend their free time to invest in others and not just to party on themselves. And then though, this, this instruction about teaching, I think is a good reminder, especially in light of Titus chapter one, where Paul does reserve the office of elder or pastor for men. But consider here the massive influence that women can have in the church. They have direct teaching and training opportunities for what's usually more than 50% of a church's body. Women have direct, can have a direct impact on how other women live out the gospel. They can have a direct impact on how other women can nurture the next generation of Christ followers. And notice even here, it's not Titus who's the one who trains the younger women. It's the older women who do that. So older sisters, please be creative in how you can do this well. Group number three, younger women display their healthy doctrine through their healthy living. So we turn then to verse four and verse five. They need, it said, Paul says they need teaching and training for how to love their husbands and their children. I just want to read, peel back a layer of their situation. What does it say that the younger women in Crete need training about this? I think it probably says that these younger ladies have never seen any kind of functional or uh, families or marriages. These younger women are likely coming out of very dysfunctional and broken homes. Just remember what's described in chapter 1, verse 12. The culture of Crete there. Evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons. I imagine that kind of culture would lead to many broken homes. But here when you have beautiful and godly and repentant and lovingly sacrificial families, oh, that shows off, that displays our healthy doctrine. Now, if you look at uh, verse 5, and most qualities there are, are fairly self-explanatory, but two of them probably get your eyes right away. They're like lightning rods. Working at home and submissive to their own husbands. This is why we do expository preaching, that we can't avoid verses like this. So, Let's just explain very briefly what these don't mean and what these do mean. So working at home, this does not mean that Paul calls younger women to be enslaved to their home, like some kind of marital house arrest. The same Paul who wrote this uh, instruction in Titus 2 is the same Paul who knows, I'm sure, Proverbs 31 and the industrious woman described there who works much outside of the home. The same Paul who writes this here is the same Paul who met Lydia in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 when she was outside of her home selling purple goods for her family. Working at home does not mean, men, this is especially for you, working at home does not mean that your wife is the only one who cooks and cleans at your house. Does not give you permission to be passive 
What working at home does mean, one commentator provides kind of a dictionary definition, is that she is diligent and attentive to order household matters. Now I get that's kind of up in the air, and as you get particular, it might look different for each family, but I would say women are usually more disposed or gifted in this area than men. Even just as a personal testimony, if I could prove to you and I could have before and after pictures of what my house looked like when I was a bachelor versus what my house looks like now that I am married, you would see the difference. And the, uh, the difference is my lovely wife who is disposed to being attentive to household matters. But the other kind of lightning rod quality that Paul calls these younger ladies to have, this is how they display their doctrine is submissive to their own husbands. So again, what this doesn't mean, submissive to your own husbands does not mean you check your brain in the door and never have any level of discernment or intelligence. Submissive to your own husbands does not mean that the husband and wife are not part of the same team. Submissive to your own husbands does not mean that the husband's just going to say and do whatever he wants and the wife's just going to have to this is the same Bible that says husbands are to be sacrificial, humble, and Christ-like leaders in their home. And from one theologian, there are limits to when you would submit to your husband. These limits include, or probably are not limited to, you should not submit to your husband when it would violate a biblical principle. You should not submit to your husband when it would violate your conscience. You should not submit to your husband when it would compromise your relationship with Christ. You should not submit to your husband when it would compromise the care and nurture and protection of your children. You should not submit to your husband when it would enable his sin. And you should not submit to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. But what does submitting to your own husband mean? We have time to cover it all, but it does mean that the man takes the initiative in the home. Notice I did not say that the man takes complete control in the home. But as the man leads, he listens and lives with his wife in an understanding way, as 1 Peter 3 says. And as he does that, the woman supports, helps execute the plan of the house, and trusts her husband's leadership. But whether it's working at home or submissive to your own husband, I think both of these qualities show the unique gift and role that God has given women from the beginning. As a matter of fact, if you want to learn more about this, come join us at 945. This is what we're talking about. I think a good, simple definition we gave last week about the role and gifting of women was that God has made women to nurture physical and spiritual life. To nurture physical and spiritual life. Women can do that whether they're young or old. Women can do that whether they're single or married. Women can do that whether they have kids or no kids to nurture physical and spiritual life. Group number four, who are to display their healthy doctrine through their healthy living, the younger men. Look at verse six. It's a very simple instruction. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We want to talk about focusing on a temptation of younger men. Younger men have a hard time being self-controlled. Younger men are like puppies. 
They are excited and energetic and eager, especially eager to get a girlfriend. <laughs> younger men think they see the world clearly, but like puppies, younger men often lack depth perception. So they crash into stuff all the time. They make decisions that are rash and short-sighted. But in saving younger men, the Spirit of God has made them new, so that now the younger men don't have to be ruled by their passions, that they can still have passion, but they can also meet it with restraint and patience and discernment and trust in God, all because they have a new contentment and a new power from their Savior who has saved them and given his life for them. Younger men, be self-control. Group number five is not a group at all. It's actually a person. It's Titus. Titus is to display his healthy doctrine through his healthy life. Paul tells Titus, you're to be like a model. Titus is maybe to be like the Maybelline makeup models. You remember the tagline from Maybelline? I'm going to test your pop culture knowledge. It says, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline, right? That's the tagline. People should be able to look at Titus and say, hey, maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Jesus in him and everything that he does. He's to be a model of good works. I've heard someone say that a church that a church's holiness will never exceed the holiness of their pastor. That's a very weighty call for the elders here. And it's not to put pastors on a pedestal, but it is a reminder that God uses pastors to shape his people, not just through their teaching. So we get similar instructions to Timothy when Paul tells him to watch your life and your doctrine. And so as Paul continues, he addresses Titus's teaching. He says it's to have integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Integrity like a building that's built on sturdy doctrine, not shaky facts. Dignity, same word for the older men. So teaching that's respectable and serious about God, not necessarily taking himself too seriously. And it's to be sound. Again, that word can be translated as healthy, leading to wholeness and health. Titus is to show off the healthy doctrine he believes. And finally, group six, bond servants, are to show off through their healthy lives that they believe in healthy doctrine. We come to that word bond servant and to be honest, the word you're probably more familiar with, all of us are more familiar with, is slave. And that word is, is not used here just because it comes with a huge amount of baggage from our own history as a country. But this system of bond service uh, would not be exactly parallel to the American system of slavery from the 15th and 19th centuries. Our system was had far more ownership of the individual and uh, was based largely or mainly skin. But still for the bond servants in Crete, they would have a higher degree of subjugation and obligation to their employer or to their master. And so even here, just another clarification, a description of bond servants and even instructions to them do not justify holding people as bond servants. This is the same Bible that upholds that all people are made in the image of God. To justify holding people as slaves, you have to really deny that teaching and make people less than people. That's why perhaps in other places Paul tells bond servants, get your freedom if you have the opportunity. 
These instructions don't dismiss the evil of their situation. They inform them how to respond well to their situation. So how do they do that? Well, in verse 9, Paul calls them to submit to their uh, their employers. They would have the same limits of their submission as wives would with with their husbands. But really, you notice here, Paul is after their attitude. And perhaps we can broaden it out to our attitude as we approach our workplaces. It's like Paul tells them, guys, don't just do the bare minimum and get off. Seek to bless your employer. Even when your employer doesn't bless you, Last time I checked, that's the heart of the golden rule. To treat people how you want to be treated, not how they treat you. It's not that we can't spot wrongs. He says don't be argumentative, but neither do we constantly disagree or complain at work. And we are not pilfering. We don't steal from our boss. And it's not just directly, but even think of this indirectly. One way we can steal from our boss is by constantly wasting time at work. That's an indirect way. You're getting money for not doing what you're paid to do. So my friend, what's your attitude at work? Does it display the beauty of what you believe? Now for the bond servants, they could display the beauty of the one who has truly set them free. Not from physical chains, but one day he will. But but Jesus has set them free from eternal chains. As 1 Peter 2 says, Jesus went before them as an example, suffering for their sin and leaving behind an example that they may walk in his steps. And Jesus, as he suffered unjustly, entrusted himself to the Father who always judges justly. Friends, in any mistreatment you receive at work, are you ready to follow the footsteps of Jesus and trust your Heavenly Father? Here are all the groups who display the healthy doctrine that they believe to catch our breath for a second. We look back at the whole landscape and see what the forest looks like. <coughs> I think here is really good news for anyone who struggles with feeling purposeless, with anyone who struggles with feeling useless. Like, how can God use me? Does God even want to use me? Here are these groups, whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are rich or poor, Jesus loves you, can save you, and can shine through you. And not even just in a vague way, but in a way that is specific to how he's made you and gifted you. He can cause you to build up his church and its help. We display the doctrine. Secondly, and more briefly, we disciple the doctrine we believe. I wonder, uh, who taught you how to drive? That could be a question that's either asked nicely or kind of angry in a sarcastic way. <laughs> who taught you how to drive? <laughs> my experience, I, if I remember right, that my driving instructor, I think, was doing it as community service hours for his parole. So, <laughs> Somehow I made it. Uh, He, I think, taught his niece how to drive, and he told her that all of the stop signs with a white border around them are optional. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. She's like, no, because every stop sign has a white border around it. So learn how to drive. You need to sit in the classroom. 
You need to learn certain terms. You need to learn street signs and parts of the car. But you need more than the classroom. You also have to actually get in the car. And it helps to watch someone drive. When they put on the brake, when they put on the blinker, what to do when they get cut off. But you need to do more than just watch somebody drive. You actually have to get behind the wheel and drive yourself. To learn how to drive, you need information, you need observation, and you need application. To be a healthy disciple of the Lord Jesus, you need information, observation, and application. Notice all the times across this paragraph of how these groups interact with one another, just the little verbs. You got teach, train, model, urge, encourage. To be a healthy disciple of Jesus, you need information. There is doctrine and its implications that we must learn and teach others. The older women teach, Titus teaches. Foundationally, we should teach the gospel that God created us and is holy. And but men are created in the image of God, men and women, but we have rebelled against God. And therefore, are, as accountable to him, are under just condemnation. But God, out of his love, sent his only son, the Lord Jesus, to be born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law, to live the life we didn't live, and die the death we deserve in our place. And we respond to that by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save us from our sin. We follow him as the Lord of our lives. We teach that gospel, and we press in to teach beyond that gospel. We teach the Trinity. We teach the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. We teach the nature of the church. We teach the nature of our salvation. This is where our health as a disciple begins, but it is not where our health as a disciple ends. We need more than information. We need observation. My friend, you need more times more than just this, more than just formal settings. You need informal settings. You need to observe in real life what it looks like to live in light of what you believe. So I'm thinking of these verses. I think of the older women. Older women, I don't know if you know this, but I am not a woman. I can't explain what it looks like to submit and work at home better than you can show it. Or I think of the younger men described in these verses. I'm struck that Paul doesn't give them any kind of process of, all right, how do you guys be self-controlled? He, he, Titus, he just says to Titus, urge them. That's it. Well, maybe the hint is their relationship with Titus himself. With Titus, they get to observe somebody who is self-controlled. They get to relate to somebody who gives them teaching and accountability and friendship. We need to watch. We need observation. Brothers and sisters, I'm encouraged by the friendships that have been formed here. Please continue in these. But if your discipleship to Jesus is limited to information, my friend, I'm afraid that you'll be malnourished. I understand that to develop friendships takes time, that many are shy, that pretty much everybody is busy. But for God's glory and our good, together, let's work toward developing deep friendships that are mutually encouraging and mutually edifying. But we need information, observation, and application. So I'm reading these verses. Don't you see 
Everybody is involved. Everybody is in the game. Church is a team sport, not an individual sport. Even Titus is not just a coach, he's a player coach. And we have groups not just off to themselves trying to live for Jesus, we have groups intermingling. So older men, brothers, I would encourage you, find a younger dad. Maybe ask him, is there something at your house I can help with? I'll stop by, I'll bring a sandwich, we'll hang out. Teenagers are so encouraged by the team group. I love the camaraderie formed there. But don't section yourself off from the rest of the church. Maybe develop a good practice. Every first Wednesday of the month, come to prayer with the rest of the adults. It'll be awkward, but it'll be good for you. Together, we help each other become healthy disciples of Jesus. Now, last, we, we display our doctrine, we disciple our doctrine. Lastly, we adorn our doctrine. This has two sides to the same coin. On one side, to adorn our doctrine, we have to discredit. That is, we have to discredit the charges against us. Notice the context of Crete. Maybe verse 5. The end of that verse, it says that the word of God may not be reviled. Or verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say against us. These are the kind of people around the Christians in Crete, people who level charges against them. But my friends, when we adorn the doctrine we believe, we discredit the charges leveled against us. When we live consistent with what we believe, we make it harder for charges to stick. Charges like these Christians think they're better than everybody. Charges like there's a bunch of hypocrites that go to church. Charges like Christian marriages are just oppressive and toxic and outdated. When we live consistent with what we believe, we discredit those charges. But just as a quick caveat, not to put a ton of pressure on you, we will inevitably discredit what we believe. We will inevitably live inconsistent with what we claim to believe. But then it's another opportunity to adorn our doctrine because then we are models not just of living, we're models of repentance. We are humble enough to admit our sin and turn from it with the Lord's help. Adorn our doctrine has the side of discrediting claims and the other side of giving credit to our Savior. You can think of this with a couple of analogies like the one we used earlier. You can think of it like food presentation. So verse 10, Paul tells the bondservants, in everything, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this truth that God saved us, not because of anything we've done, but because of his grace, this truth that God saved us, not by our works, but by Christ's work in our place, that truth is like the dish or the meal. Our lives are like how we present that meal. The food can taste great, but it can look gross. And that mean, that would make no one wants, that would mean no one wants to eat. I think it's a good reminder that before any anyone else would taste Christ, they first see how we present Christ in our lives. The other analogy we can use about how to adorn the doctrine is a postcard. A healthy church has healthy doctrine that produces healthy living. In a dark world, when that happens, it's like a postcard for a different destination. My 
My friend Tony uses this analogy. It's, it's a postcard that offers a warmer and brighter destination than the darkness we see around us. It's like a postcard for heaven. Of course, we're not perfect yet, but it should be evident that heaven has broken into this group of people. Think about how this works for Crete. In a world in Crete where there is much dysfunction in families, think of how brightly godly, gospel-motivated, loving, and persevering marriages would shine in that kind of world as a postcard for a different destination. In a world like Crete, where there is laziness and gluttony and dishonesty, this church in Crete offers to aim, aims to offer workers who are fair, who are excellent, who are content, and who have integrity. They are like a postcard that offers a different Our beautiful wives should show off our beautiful Savior. And perhaps a good parallel verse to end on is 1 John 3, verse 2, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We believe in a beautiful Savior, and believe it or not, that beautiful Savior is making us beautiful like him. And one day, his work will be done. Let's lean into that work now. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, we aim to show off your beauty we ask that you would shine your light through us, across this church, in each part of this church, but together in our unity as a church. That in a dark world, we would live much different. That we would have our minds transformed by the renewing that comes from your word. And we would be models of healthy living. Oh God, that you would help us with we would, that you would grow our health through a good discipleship by teaching us information, by giving us examples to observe, and by not keeping us on the sidelines, but getting us in the game and applying what we know. Please do this. We ask by your grace for our good 